everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. I wanted to thank both Ethan and Ben for That's coming right. on our show. Because I don't think we got the chance to thank Ethan for coming on our show last episode with Ben. But also, we want to thank Ben for coming on our show. So. That's right. Thank you both for joining our show and guesting on it. Ethan, I'm sorry I was not there for your guest. But thanks for being me. And Ben, we're uh, excited to learn and follow your progress as you develop Standoff, which was a, a card game that we talked about when Ben was on. So yeah, thanks guys. Also, I want to have a shout out to John, who's a longtime listener of the show, who wrote us an amazing letter that I have yet to respond to and probably have not responded to it by the time this episode <laughs> has aired either. But maybe I have. It's a mystery. It's like Schrodinger response, whether yeah, or not right. I've responded to it. But yeah, John uh, really appreciated the uh, email. It brought back a lot of memories and he clarified that as many of our listeners probably already knew that i didn't know but that uh hell satan's which is what our halo clan was was from the simpsons because that was the viking group that homer joins because john was a big fan of the simpsons i uh was not allowed to watch the simpsons because yeah. our father believed that it was morally bankrupt so <laughs> But but yet he watches it and he gets the jokes, but uh, not not us. No, we we weren't allowed. But anyway, this is not an episode about morally bankruptcy, or maybe it is. We're gonna talk about some fun stuff today. We are. But first, we're gonna start off with recently played. Zach, what have you been recently been playing? Seth, recently I've been dabbling in the area of bootleg games again, and I've oh. been playing the 1994. Hummer Team Famicom port of Aladdin. The Super Nintendo version uh, is what they based it on, not the Sega version. So it's an NES version, except it's... Yes. Yeah. This is the Famicom NES version based on the Capcom Super Nintendo Aladdin game. Uh, this version came out around 1994, 1995, um, was created by Hummer Team, and it ports the Super Nintendo version pretty accurately to the Famicom. And what's interesting about this is it does have a surprising amount of quality. While I might be a bit biased because i do like my bootleg games i am also first to recognize that the games can be very bad at times and this game captures a lot of the gameplay mechanics that were featured in the snes version and does it pretty accurately um things like swinging from poles climbing up ledges jumping on enemies the way you can kind of chain your attacks so that when you bounce off of one enemy you can bounce onto the other and you can bounce onto the other and you can kind of get this little chain going all the stuff that you'd expect from the super nintendo game has been brought into the famicom version there is some expected bootleg jankiness uh, the hit detection sometimes isn't perfect and also the music kind of sounds like someone just kind of like winged it <laughs> like they were like eh, it sounds close enough i will say though that the hummer team version of the game is vastly superior to the officially licensed version of disney's aladdin to the nes that version was made by virgin the virgin nes version is based on the mega drive genesis game which is of course the superior aladdin game but virgin's nes port is actually based on the game Boy version that they created and they pretty much just took the Game Boy code and like dropped it into the NES because it's exactly the same graphics exactly the same sounds exactly the same music nothing has been updated everything sounds awful it's slow it's sluggish it's ugly it's just not good and this is the official version this is the licensed version from Nintendo wait Virgin based their NES version off of the Sega Genesis version, but the Sega Genesis version that was developed for the Game Boy? Virgin created the Sega Genesis, the Game Boy, and the NES version. Ah, okay. 
when they created the Game Boy version, they based it on the version they created for the Genesis. For the Genesis, right. When they created the NES version, they just took the Game Boy version and dropped it into the NES code. So it's the Genesis Game Boy version of the game on NES. They didn't do anything to resize the sprites. They didn't do anything to change like the graphics. It looks awful. You literally look at one version to the next. It looks like the same game, just with color. That's the difference. Ar- arguably, they only developed the game once. Exactly. And then they ported it to the Game Boy and then ported that version to the NES. Right, exactly. That's exactly what they did. Virgin got paid three times to make one game. And Hubbard team didn't get paid at all <laughs> beyond from the sales they made on the street. And their version is pretty faithfully accurate to the Super Nintendo version to a, like an unnecessary degree. Like they didn't need to go as hard as they did, but they put a lot of love and care into the game to the point where I think it's the superior version of Aladdin for the 8-bit systems. Like if you had to pick a version of Aladdin to play, that was for the NES. Play the bootleg version from Hummer Team because it's the best version out there. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Seth, what nice. about you? Uh, recently, I've been playing an older game as well. The game that I've been playing was released in 2005 and was developed and published by LucasArts. And that game was Star Wars Republic Commando, where you're a leader of an elite squad of Republic Commandos. You have to do like these covert specialty missions because you guys are better than the other Republic troopers. You're special. And it's a squad-based first-person shooter uh, so your squad will follow your orders and you can point at them and they'll do them and they'll work together and for the time uh, the game had some pretty decent AI and pretty decent squad mechanics and was a, a pretty good uh FPS. Playing it recently, there's definitely some uh, age being shown. The graphics just kill me when I'm playing it, but it's it's just hilarious. I also really enjoy the gigantic reticle I have and like the spread of where my bullets go. So I'm like a commando and I'm like the best commando of the bunch. And my rifle has like a reticle that is the size of like a bowling ball and the bullets spread throughout that entire space. And I'm like, I'm not a really good shot when clone troopers and stormtroopers are supposed to be good shots it's interesting but it's fun you get to play through the um the battle of genosis and go through various different kind of like side quests as you go through and you view the events of star wars through the eyes of uh, a clone trooper which is always fun you have a group of four you're the leader and that's your job you're like the guy in charge then there's like a guy who's the explosive expert there's a guy who's like the hunter and then there's like the guy who's like i think he's like the heavy weapons guy or something i yeah yeah but like they all have like their own jobs but they all can do the same job yeah they basically can all do the same thing yeah they can all do the same thing but they're all supposed to be specialized i liked when they were doing the intro they're like this is your explosive expert and this is this guy who does this very thing and this guy he's scary like that's his job that's his specialty is that he's scary they're like yeah he's a he's a he's a crazy hunter and you're like okay and they're like and you're in charge but then the first mission is collecting your troops which oh yeah is weird in hindsight because they're like we're gonna put you all on individual transports but then your first mission is going to be finding each other it's like why didn't we just travel on the same transport so that our first mission could be doing an objective versus locating the other person in our squad 
It's just more fun that way. <laughs> yeah. What's great is they're like, we're going to put you with other clone troopers who are going to immediately die in the very beginning. I like you ride in with the clone trooper and a Genosin guy like jumps on the plane and just kills your other guy. And then there's like this clone trooper who somewhere has the ability to see what's going on in the battle. And he provides you like Overwatch. And he's like, okay, yeah, everything's messed up now because our whole plan went tits up. So you got to go connect up with your yeah, rest of your right. squad and and i'm gonna be here guiding you along and i'm like what where, where are you like what what right. is going on like it's just questionable but anyway it's fun it's fun like that era of star wars games can be fun there is that that like right around the early 2000s there was a series of star wars games that came out that were always just a joy and a, and a pleasure to play and republic commando was one of those yeah i like republic commando i don't think i've ever beaten it but i have played it a few times just the like opening sequence i don't know why i haven't like actually sat through and beaten it but you know what i never feel the need to <laughs> it's not everyone's cup of tea anyway we're, we're talking about something else today we're talking about a game that ethan talked about because Ethan was actually recently playing the sequel to this game. We're talking about Psychonauts, specifically the history and the legacy that it left. Now, to start us off, we should remind everyone about Tim Schafer. Tim Schafer is someone who we brought up before when we talked about the history of The Secret of Monkey Island, as he was a key player in the early days of LucasArts, at the time, Lucasfilm Games. Before he got his start there, Tim was a computer science student at UC Berkeley. While at school, he started to become interested in writing, and he took on various internships at smaller, corporations to develop databases. He had dreamed of using his time at these internships to kind of leverage and get a bigger job at a company like Atari, but after applying to Atari and Hewlett-Packard, he was rejected many times. When the opportunity arose, he decided to apply for a position at Lucasfilm Games, as they were looking for a programmer who also had a knack for dialogue. Now, which sounds like the perfect fit for Tim Schafer when you know about him, like someone interested in writing but also has a computer science background, that's like perfect. Now, Tim got on a phone call with David Fox, a game designer at Lucasfilm Games, and began to gush about his love of the Lucasfilm game Ball Blaster. This was, as Tim would realize, a grave error, because Lucasfilm Games never put out a game called Ball Blaster. They put out a game called Ball Blazer, but Tim had only played the pirated version of the game, which had the name changed. Perfect. So he's going on and on about how much he loves Ball Blaster. Meanwhile, I assume David Fox is just sitting there being like, this kid didn't even pay for our game. <laughs> While this might seem like a job-threatening blunder, David actually said to Tim, send us your resume. And Tim did, along with a little comic that he put together. And in the comic, it features him applying for and getting the job at Lucasfilm Games. And the text for the comic is done in the style of a text adventure. This proved to be a good move, as he got the job in 1989 and was brought on as a scumlet, which was a kind of awful-sounding term for the people who would work as programmers for scum, um, pretty much being the people who would implement the features and ideas of the lead game designers. So a lead game designer would come up to a scumlet and say, hey, I want this in the game. The scumlet's job was to make it happen. Tim Schafer's early work included playtesting Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, the action game, and working on the NES port of Maniac Mansion. Tim and another LucasArts colleague, David Grossman, were soon approached to work on The Secret of Monkey Island, where, according to the game creator Ron Gilbert, they would go on to write about two-thirds of the dialogue. Following this, he would help with 
with Monkey Island 2 and would go on to become the project lead on Day of the Tentacle, which was the sequel to Maniac Mansion. His first solo project was Full Throttle, which is a biker theme adventure, which is a game that I still have yet to play today and is probably something that I should probably play since I'm a fan of a lot of uh, Tim's work. He would also go on to design Grim Fandango, which we have an episode about and is also an amazing adventure game. Now, while Tim led a solid career at LucasArts, he would go on to leave the company in 2000 to start his own company, Double Fine Productions, which is still going today, but is now a subsidiary of Microsoft. They would go on to soon get to work on their debut game, Psychonauts. Uh, Psychonauts reportedly began development back as far as 1995. Tim had the idea of including a a peyote-induced psychedelic experience for the main character of Full Throttle, but it was rejected because Lucas wants to be family-friendly, and that would not have been family-friendly. Tim would store that idea in his head, and he would go on to use that to help fuel his vision for what Psychonauts would become. The game entered development in the early 2000s, right near the end of the dot-com boom. For the younger listeners out there, the dot-com boom was the name for a stock market bubble that happened through the late 1990s into the early 2000s when there was a rapid growth in venture capital spending on internet properties and like many bubbles it eventually popped but during the dot-com boom there was a need for office space because everyone was starting small internet companies so tons of office space was being bought up and double fine would have to establish their initial offices in a warehouse in san francisco this seemed to be a good fit for them until they realized it wasn't safe enough and was actually making it harder for them to work Then the dot-com bubble burst, and with it there was a sudden abundance of office space, and tons of companies began to go out of business. So, what happens when a ton of companies go out of business, and there's suddenly a bunch of empty office space? That office space becomes dirt cheap. So, Double Fine was able to move from their dangerous warehouse to an actual office space. And while that was probably good for the future of Double Fine, it also meant more delays in production, because when you move an entire studio, that takes time. Now, another problem that Double Fine faced was that it wanted all of its developers to have artistic freedom within the game. It seems like a great idea when you say it out loud, but when it actually comes to practice, it caused a lot of strife within the team. Some members would want to design levels a certain way, others would want it designed a different way. At one point, it was also decided that levels would be generated by the artists, but this left the level designers frustrated as because they felt like they had no input into the design of the levels, which was their job. There was also an issue with the fact that levels were being generated outside of the standards that were expected. Due to an issue with the tool sets that were being used. Basically, people weren't properly trained on these tool sets, and when different people brought what their own personal knowledge was and using these tool sets, you got different quality. Tim Schafer was supposed to be overseeing the process of using these tool sets, but he was too busy and ultimately was tied up doing too many other things around the office because his job was basically doing every job. So this works, it doesn't work sometimes, right? So I think with like when you come to where you're like, all of the artists could do whatever they want there needs to be some unified vision of the game there needs to be like something that ties everything together but i was recently reading about bioware and how they would divide characters up with writers and like that was your character especially dragon age 2 the writer for varick who is the dwarf they're like i don't want to write a romance so varick was not romanceable because they were like no i'm not doing that they're like i don't like writing romances and i'm not doing it and they owned the varick character so they 
weren't romanceable, which I, I didn't really know. So I guess it can work when you divide things up like that, where like people own characters and they kind of own every aspect of it. But like when you're owning levels, that's a little different than like owning a character. So I think allowing people freedom to do what they can do can work in instances. I don't think it was this instance where it would work well. Now, a lot of the problems that Double Fine was facing ended up being ultimately solved because in 2003, they decided that they were going to pretty much cut down the level design team. So all of the level design team was shrunk down to one person. And then it was decided that they were going to unify level design into art and create a world building team that would be headed by that one person who was remaining from the level design team, who was Eric Robson. Eric would also become the lead designer of the game. And from here, the team was actually able to focus on getting the game developed. Now, while all this was happening, it was planned for Psychonauts to be an Xbox exclusive. Ed Fries, who we mentioned in our Halo episode really liked the idea of pushing games as art and was heavily supportive of the development of Psychonauts. Microsoft getting involved was both a blessing and a curse as while it may have given the team some initial direction it caused more delays with the requested change that Microsoft would make. When presented with early betas to playtest Microsoft playtesters were confused about how to play the game and requested there to be instructions in place. Tim didn't like this idea as he felt it was counterintuitive to the nature of adventure games. Microsoft also wanted to make changes to the plot, which Double Fine fought back against, which is ironic that they were in this state with Microsoft launching their first game and having Microsoft give them a lot of feedback and critical pushback when Microsoft would go on to buy Double Fine. Now they can get corporate alignment before they roll out anything, and, and it probably is probably smoother now that they are owned by Microsoft versus having Microsoft as a client. Oh yeah, but definitely. Now, Ed would, uh, would leave Microsoft in 2000 2004, and with his departure, also with the departure of the publishing deal for Psychonauts, as Microsoft would quickly pull the publishing deal from them. At that time, Microsoft canceled Psychonauts that had been in development since 2001, and Microsoft's plan was to, uh, they were moving forward with creating the Xbox 360, which was already well underway. Now, losing a publishing deal was a major blow to Double Fine, and Tim Schafer and executive producer Carolyn as Murdoch struggled to find a new publisher deal. They were supported financially by Will Wright, who had just sold Maxis to Electronic Arts and was doing all right for himself with cash. Will Wright would go on to receive a credit in the game for his support for essentially keeping them afloat. He paid out of pocket. Like he he was like, oh, you guys need money? I have plenty. That's like what happened with uh, Monty Python. Yeah, one of the Beatles like funded <laughs> Like, out of pocket. He was like, I want to see this movie get made. In 2004, Double Find would go on to find a new publisher, Majesco Entertainment. Majesco is familiar to us because they were the creators of the Sega Genesis 3, which we, Zach and I, both owned before Zach destroyed it by being a big, dumb toddler. Yeah, I tripped on the power thing. The Sega Genesis 3 was a great system, and I feel like it was the... Was it our second Sega Genesis? It was my first Sega Genesis, but it was, I think, your second Sega Genesis. Because our first Sega Genesis was Sega Genesis 2. So we went from Sega Genesis 2 to 3 to 1, and now to 2. But anyway, yeah, we had a lot of different Sega Genesis's. Uh, Majesco planned to release the game on both Windows and Xbox. They also announced a PS2 version, which would further stretch Double Fine's dwindling resources. Despite this, however, the game went gold in 2005 and was released on April 19th. Now, 
How does it play? Well, Psychonauts is an odd sort of game. It takes place, the storyline, at Whispering Rock Psychic Summer Camp. Whispering Rock is a U.S. government-controlled training facility that operates under the guise of a summer camp for children. Here at the camp, children are trained to use their psychic abilities. You take on the role of Rasputin, or Raz, who is a child with psychic powers that runs away from the circus to join Whispering Rock because he wants to be with kids that are similar to him, you know, that have psychic powers. While there, he begins to unravel a plot at the camp and he tries his best to stop it this kind of like sinister conspiracy going on the game is a platformer that has adventure elements in the game you control raz in the third person and you solve various puzzles using your psychic abilities like telekinesis levitation invisibility or pyrokinesis through using these powers you can explore the camp and the minds of other people at the camp because there are two worlds to explore the real world as in the world of the camp that you're walking around in the woods and also the mental worlds the worlds that consist only within the minds of other people and these consciousnesses you can enter to solve problems in the real world so a character might be having a psychological issue or something that they need to get done and they're having issue with it you go into their mind and you help remove that block that is causing them to have that issue the mental worlds were drastically different in art design from the real world that you would see this is kind of where you get the psychedelic peyote influence i think that tim schaefer brought with him from full throttle where these are like bizarre twisting environments and uh you'll have like i think one looks like a kind of creepy circus another one looks like like a town that's like floating in the air it's all different every world is different um but within these mental worlds you also have to solve specific goals and you have to eventually resolve the issue that the character is having psychologically often by defeating a boss so how did this game do yeah how did it do it, it was received very well it received an 8 out of 10 from Eurogamer, an 8.4 out of 10 from GameSpot, 4.5 stars from GameSpy, and 8.7 out of 10 from ign the game's cast of characters level design and art styles were all incredibly well received but overall the game structure was criticized by some reviewers now, while the game was fairly well received by critics, it was not necessarily fairly well received by consumers. It didn't meet overall expectations on sales. Majesco's own fiscal year projections had them at an $18 million net loss and ceo carl yankowski resigned by the end of 2005 only 100,000 copies had sold north america and majesco withdrew from the big budget console game marketplace by 2012 it was stated by tim schaefer that only about 400,000 copies of the game were sold uh not good especially for a game that was released in 2005 and by 2012 only 400,000 copies were sold this was supposed to be a big game and it was not majesco Majesco's rights in 2011 expired over the game, uh, and the game rights completely reverted back to Double Fine. The game, when the rights were expired, was removed from various online services, such as Xbox Live, due to technically being unpublished. The game would go on to be republished under the Microsoft Studios name and were released again on Xbox Marketplace in February of 2012. When did Microsoft buy Double Fine? 2019. Oh, nice. So they were able to get Microsoft 
Microsofts to publish them and re-release them before they were bought. Now, with the rights expiring and then being republished on digital storefronts like Steam, Humble Bundle, and GOG, the game actually saw a renewed life. It is reported that 1.2 million copies sold after the acquisition of the rights. This breaks down so that there was 736,000 copies sold via Humble Bundle, 430,000 copies sold via Steam, 32,000 copies via GOG, and 23,000 copies sold via the Humble Store um, versus Humble Bundles. So it really truly took on the cult classic type of moniker as it didn't sell very well in the beginning and then people really like Psychonauts a lot and it really got this like retro love for it. That's where I got my copy. My copy I got in June of 2012 which was right after the rights reverted back to Double Fine and it was put onto Steam. And I actually got my copy through Humble Bundle. So one of those 700,000 copies was my copy because I remember getting the Humble Bundle with the Psychonauts key in it. Um, it was one of the earliest Humble Bundles that I think I bought. It might have been one of the earliest Humble Bundles. But yeah, it definitely saw a renewed life. Now, Tim Schafer, for a long, long time, always expressed interest in developing a sequel. He reportedly had started pitching it to various publishers early on, but was often turned down just due to the strangeness of the ideas that he had. Tim made mention of the sequel when he was working on the Kickstarter for Broken Age, and at one point Marcus Pearson, the creator of Minecraft and at the time the owner of Mojang, expressed interest in funding the sequel, but ultimately he didn't. And apparently it was also revealed that he wasn't the only person offering to fund it out of pocket. There was like other millionaire game developers who were like, oh, we'd pay for that. I actually um, backed Broken Age. I am pretty sure I had a common exchange with Tim Schafer on the Kickstarter for Broken Age. It's okay. Broken Age is an okay game. It's a fun little uh, light-hearted adventure game. I think one of the issues I had with Broken Age was there was a delay to the second part. So you played the first part, and then there was a very long delay till the second part came out. Yep. And I don't like when that happens with games, because I lose interest with them very quickly, and I would like a completed game. I don't think I've beaten it today, but it's still a pretty fun game. Now, Psychonauts 2 was officially announced in 2015, and it was announced that it would be using Fig as a tool to crowdsource the game. The campaign raised $3.3 million, and officially the game was released in August of 2021. So it had quite a bit of a development period, and there is quite the story behind Psychonauts 2's development as well. However, before Psychonauts 2 launched, a VR title called Psychonauts in the Rhombus of Ruin was released in 2017 as a standalone storyline. The character of Raz also appears in various other games like Brutal Legend, Costume Quest, and he has a cameo in Alice Madness Returns. And there is a documentary series that Ethan mentioned, but as a reminder to our listeners, it's called Psych Odyssey, and it is about the production of Psychonauts 1 and 2, and it's something like 36 parts, and like each part is over an hour plus long, and episode 1 is apparently just about Psychonauts 1. So if you want to learn more about Psychonauts, if you think that you're interested in hearing more about the story, trust us, there is more to it, and it goes into way more detail than what we even talked about. Um, So check out Psych Odyssey, it's on YouTube. That's going to be our Psychonauts episode. We're going to move on to the retro rewind we're going to refresh everyone since we haven't talked about the games that we assigned each other back in the episode where we talked about banjo kazooie then i died and we had a number of people came onto our show and we haven't gotten back to it so anyway to remind everybody uh zach assigned me f-zero and i assigned him shadow force so f-zero i played it was actually released in 1990 and was a launch and first party title for the super famicom it is a 
fun high speed racing game that has some pretty tight controls for being so fast though i think the best part of f-zero is the manual the manual details out the backstory and the characters of f-zero which the game has no cutscenes or plot and is strictly racing like you boot the game up and you are racing these futuristic cars in a futuristic race course and there is nothing to do with the actual plot that is detailed out not only in a multiple sections of the manual where they have the backstory to the entire world as individual car and character diagrams and breakouts but there's also a comic featuring Captain Falcon so in case you didn't know F-Zero is what happens when multi-billionaires who have earned their wealth through trading with the universe want to have a multi-planet spectacle because they are bored they decide that they want to go watch super fast racing cars across the having alien like everyone can compete and captain falcon who is i would say arguably the protagonist of f-zero is not only an f-zero pilot he's also a bounty hunter and he spends his time between f-zero races hunting down bounties because he's a pretty good bounty hunter and the comic in the manual arguably has nothing to do with f-zero because there's only one panel of him racing the rest of it is literally him hunting down two different bounties like the entire comic is just him hunting down bounties they introduce another racer in the comic but he's just mad that he went on his turf and took his bounty so he was going to see him on the course and like beat him out on the race but it's it's great it's so much great additional information that you don't need to play f-zero that's just available in the manual so i recommend that if you're going to play f-zero which for the snes and there, it's also on the n64 um i enjoy both of them i think they hold up for racing games i think the uh controls are pretty tight and the, the speed is very fast and it's, it's great if you like racing games but i recommend if you're going to want to play f-zero for the snes track down that manual and just flip through it you can just google f-zero snes manual and like the first link is like the pdf of it 100 recommend the read of that manual it is a trip it is what manuals should strive to be anyway next week zach can play the lost vikings for snes i will seth gave me shadow force a 1993 arcade game from Technos. I played in the game as Coyote. Uh, there's a couple of different characters to play as. Coyote seemed like the fun one to play as because he looked like a big wolf man. And Coyote's pretty cool. He smacks people and he can do a fun little spin move when he attacks. Uh, the game is a beat-em-up and it plays similarly to other beat-em-ups of the era. Um, so you go from one screen to the next as enemies fill the screen. You punch those enemies until they fall over and don't get up again. And then it'll say, go, and you go to the next screen. The controls were a bit clunky, but I think that was also partially due to the emulation and honestly i think this game is probably one of those games that probably better holds up if i was on an actual unit using like an actual joypad and stuff like that i tend to not enjoy playing emulated arcade games because i don't have a proper arcade stick to try them out with so maybe i'll invest in one because seth likes to give me arcade games anyway uh, for now, I'll say that the emulated version I didn't think holds up very well, at least for me, but I'm sure it holds up fine on the arcade. Next week, Seth can play Techno Cop for the Sega Genesis. Looking forward to it. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode. If you want to reach out to us, you can email classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us via our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Facebook and Instagram are Classic Gaming Brothers. Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. Feel free to join us every weekend as we are always here. Um, um, and you can listen to us on all the various podcasting applications out there. Be sure to tell your friends, tell them to like, subscribe, do all those things. And with that, Seth, is there anything you want to tell me? Don't play games like my brother.
brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. We've been the classic gaming brothers. That's right. right.